listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome, listeners, to The Renegade Economist here on 3CR's beloved airwaves. This week, I am lucky to have as my guests, you know, basically we're right in the middle of a battle at the moment. I was like, who in it do I want to interview this time? And there are no better people to speak to than my two work colleagues, Emily Sims, our research manager. Hi, Em. Hey, Carl. Great to be here. And Jesse Hermans, our policy director. G'day, Carl. And to set the scene for today, a couple of interesting graphs have come out, uh, one from the OECD showing that house prices across the 37 countries from the OECD rose by 6.7% between uh, the end of 2019 and the end of 2020, the fastest year-on-year growth in the past 20 years. So property is booming And, uh, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal looking at what's also happening to the top 400 wealthiest in America. They are booming as well, and it appears that uh, they're closing in on uh, 20% of GDP. Their wealth accounts for nearly 20% of US GDP. So the inequality divide is being driven by the property sector through I dare say, the share market in America. But Jesse, Emily, how do you view the macroeconomic uh, positioning of uh, both the global economy and what's happening here in Australia? Uh, I guess, for one, we've just gone through uh, yeah, the intense pandemic and in many cases there's also been a large fiscal response in most parts of the world. Some will argue maybe it wasn't large enough. Some will argue that it was maybe very large and potentially too large. Uh, although we haven't seen, I guess, the labour market take off uh, in a way that could be indicating uh, dangers of uh, inflation yet, although it has recovered uh, somewhat. So then I would say then that, you know, the, the taking off of the property market, it's just in many ways... Um, the era of low interest rates now combined with uh, all this additional uh, money that's just been thrown at people. So now the problem of people being able to have enough cash or like savings to be able to stump up a deposit to actually use that extremely cheap debt um, to bid more for property has in many ways uh, evaporated now people can actually start doing that or have been doing that i mean now we're maybe we're starting to reach some sort of potential ceiling who knows but with all these grants that have been thrown around for um uh for home builder and so on in australia in that case uh and you know, extremely cheap debt lots of sort of you know wage subsidies and this sort of thing at least uh, in the developed world there's definitely a lot more savings around to facilitate that sort of rapid and property price growth. We also saw I, in the media last week the introduction in the States uh, by President Biden of new capital gains tax rate. And that sort of this parallels with those proposals with some of the, the things that have been suggested in 
uh, the state budget at least, if not the federal budget in Australia, but certainly a recognition there from the US president that these kinds of inflationary conditions that are being brought about require a a uh, sort of tax response that targets capital gains and um, returns to asset wealth. Yes, good signs there that uh, politicians are recognising that uh, property is driving this this wealth gap. It's 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 throwing society onto a treadmill that uh, they're struggling to keep up with, and with wage growth uh, so low, it uh, really is putting added pressure on communities so uh, I mentioned earlier we're in the in the heart of a battle well uh, the Victorian budget has recently been uh, released and uh, the pre uh, budget announcements had us uh, somewhat excited with uh, certainly some good news in terms of uh, the, the big announcement that finally they're going to enact a rezoning windfall gains tax, which is something that uh, we've been talking about for quite some time. Uh, Jesse, perhaps do you want to give uh, a detail on that? What does that mean, the rezoning windfall gains tax? Uh, well, what it means is that Victoria, at least as a state, will cease to give away free additional development rights to uh, landholders when the land changes uh, use through rezoning. Although the details seem to indicate at this moment it's only uh, for a particular um, switch between something like a industrial use to a residential use or rural use to residential and so on within uh, certain areas. That means so not within the gate boundaries, uh, the growth areas. But yes, uh, so as long as it's within a, a major sort of zoning and then that zoning has changed, the state government says that they intend to take up to 50% of the increased value uplift as a result of the rezoning. And so we expect that money to then go uh, into the public coffers to help then fund uh, all the various uh, services and infrastructure and so on that those particular developments and urban densification projects require. Certainly. And Emily, how does this uh, help uh, governments create better communities? Well, when governments create strategic plans for more intense development, they essentially determine what are the best land use uh, options based on Things like demographic change, the available of renewal sites, um, importance of protecting environmental things like watersheds and uh, native vegetation, good quality farming land. So our strategic plans around land use and transport are really based on what generates the best overall community benefit, the greatest overall community benefit. So when we as strategic planners draw those lines on the map, when we make investment decisions around transport, where we're going to put schools and parks, that has flow on effects for the people who or the entities that currently own that land. And in that strategic planning process, we create a suite of winners and losers. So if you own land that's you know, going to be next to a new train station, you're a massive winner. If you own land that was previously farmland but is pegged for um, 
residential growth or the siting of a new freight interchange or industrial complex, you're also going to win. If your land happens to be downzoned with either a heritage overlay to protect neighbourhood characters or something like that, then your land values will be suppressed. So in that quantum, um, some people's land will rise in value significantly. As Jesse indicated, that's actually due to the new development permissions. And in Victoria, we have not been very good at charging for those. There's been a lot of suggestions from civil society uh, organisations like um, SGS Economics and Planning, from leading think tanks like the Grattan Institute, that there needs to be, and Prosper Australia, of course, (laughs) that there needs to be an adequate price on those expanded development rights. Because if we can share the uplift in value that is attributable to those new rights, that is the least cost source of revenue for the infrastructure that we need to actually make those new precincts viable. Schools are not costless. Rail, road transport, it's not costless. So we need to ensure that we're taking taxes or we're pricing development rights in a way that the value is shared with the public so that instead of just rezoning for higher uses, we also create a revenue stream that doesn't distort economic activity, that doesn't distort investment decisions, that supports the public investment that needs to be made. There's been an absence of that kind of direct beneficiary funding in Victoria, and we're really, really pleased to see the government step in that direction because the alternative is when you're talking about state taxes, they either have to go hand in cap to the federal government in order to support infrastructure spending or they have to take the tax from elsewhere and that means it falls on much more productive sectors in in our in our economy. It has to come from our wage labour or it has to come from our cap- capital profits. But if we take it from land rent like these uh, rezoning windfalls, then we're all much better off. That's right. And so the Fisherman's Bend has been the classic case where the Liberal Party overnight rezoned the land into uh, a city zone and with that made uh, millionaires of uh, all of these lucky landholders. And uh, soon after they recognised, gee, we need uh, actually some land for schools we need some land for uh, new public transport services down there and uh, the government had to buy that back off the community so uh, the if a rezoning windfalls tax is incorporated into the planning Mm. scheme uh, they can certainly ensure that uh, those funds can buy the needed land or they can develop uh, corridors where these new transport uh, lines are needed but we had none of that in place and uh, it's been a source of great corruption great corruption for a long time uh, as uh, spelt out so clearly with the John Woodman uh, Casey land saga so uh, 
Yeah, the, the, the government's announced a, a pretty minor tax. Uh, the, they're raising only $38 million uh, in our budget submission. Uh, we, we thought on 2018-19 land values that would be some $5.7 billion worth of rezonings handed out each year. Um, so really we should be collecting close to $2.5 billion, but uh, $38 million uh, has uh, the property lobby up in arms and very concerned about this. Uh, now, look, before we get onto that, uh, we need to explain a couple of other new developments that have happened through the Victorian budget. Um, there was an increase in both stamp duties and land taxes. Uh, Jesse, take us through that. Uh, the increases to stamp duties and land taxes are uh, been sort of touted as like the top end of town in terms of the um, the way they've been targeted because there was actually a, a land tax cut at the bottom end where the tax-free threshold was raised by $50,000, uh, effectively removing over um, 60,000 uh, taxpayers from the land tax tax base. But yes, uh, the, the top end of uh, land tax uh, payers in terms of those who have uh, land values across their entire portfolio amounting to $2 million or more uh, will be paying somewhat modest increases in their land tax, but it's off a very uh, substantially already high base. So... Those, uh, those additional land taxes, obviously, will, they will be, I guess, opposed by the Property Council and the various uh, shopping mall owners and all the other big REITs that own office buildings and so on, since they are generally the ones that pay those, uh, those sort of land tax rates uh, in the top thresholds. Because obviously, you can't hold a massive shopping centre with a land value under $2 million. It's uh, not very practical. So yeah, we've got uh, a lot of uh, you know kicking and screaming from the um, the sort of commercial property sector predominantly. That's what they'll be paying. Uh, whereas the stamp duty increases going to affect uh, generally the higher end property again with uh, two million dollars or more in terms of the the properties that'll be subject to those additional premium rates. But these properties, you know, um, it's funny that the the criticism of the tax is that in Nine years, we'll see the median climb up to two million dollars. That's that's what the the property lobby's uh, comeback is. And then you know the average person in nine years' time will be paying this tax. But like today, it's like well, it's highly affluent areas that would end up paying uh, those sort of taxes. And then we we know that these stamp duties indeed actually embed into the price that buyers are willing to pay anyway so really what this is going to actually do is it's just going to uh, slow down the growth in land values in higher priced areas uh, and so you can see actually even though these these taxes are supposedly going to make housing more unaffordable really it's just going to suppress land values at the sort of top end of the market relative to the rest of the market so it's going to uh, level things out somewhat. Yeah, so that, that's what the property lobby is saying, that uh, prices uh, are going to increase because of this. But Emily, can you explain in more detail why prices will not increase with higher land taxes in particular? Well, I think 
what was um, great about the Property Council's submission to um, the Treasurer recently that um, we've got a hold of is they provide a couple of fascinating case studies about the impact of these taxes. So just an example from their own submission. They say, uh, a diversified property group is in advanced discussions to inquire, acquire an industrial zone site for planned residential development in, in a key strategic site. Development would consist about 750 townhouses and apartments. The developer has conducted due diligence and constructed its financial, financial model for the potential transaction. But if the transaction occurs after 1 July, the developer will be paying an extra $1.23 million in stamp duty, which is eroding its margin, their margin by 3%. And because of the uncertainty about whether or not they'd be uh, liable then for the windfall gain tax, they've had to go back to the drawing board and conduct some more due diligence. And they say, if the developer does not proceed, hundreds of jobs will not be created in this project delivery and housing supply will stagnate. But let's think about what the developer is actually going to do here. What does it mean to go back and conduct further due diligence? They're going to go back and recognise that $1.23 million stamp duty impost and the rezoning windfall gain, and they're going to internalise it into their residual for the feasibility for this development, and then they're going to change the offer that they make for this industrially zoned site. If the development doesn't go ahead, that site will still be available, and another developer will be able to conduct a feasibility and offer what that land is worth given the consideration of the new stamp duty impost and the windfall gain tax. But the claims that if this developer doesn't proceed, then this land will, this strategic site will disappear. Well, it's, it's a misnomer. It's a misdirect. The person or the entity that is going to bear the cost of this stamp duty impost and the windfall gain tax is going to be this land, the land seller of this industrial site. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economists, broadcasting each and every month on the fourth Wednesday. And our role here is to shine a light on some of the the misinformation that comes through from vested interests. And at the moment, there's a giant showdown going on uh, between NGOs and public advocates uh, for more affordable land and housing, such as Prosper Australia, and the property lobby who are uh, seem to have all guns blazing and are really quite wary of uh, having to spend some $640 million dollars extra in uh, property related taxes to to share in uh, the the bounty of rising land values in Victoria which uh, as regular listeners will be well aware in uh, this state alone increased by 135.6 billion dollars and nationally it was uh, some 423 billion dollar increase during the pandemic so uh, there's a lot of talk about property not being able to afford this and prices being passed on. Uh, yeah, and so this open letter to the Treasurer that the Property Council's put out uh, does have us scratching our heads quite a bit. Uh, they've got three 
great case studies here. Well, three prominent case studies here. And uh, yeah, I want to look at one where uh, they're talking about the windfall gains tax uh, that uh, would lead to a 14% increase in their costs due to the rezoning tax, which will flow through to a $35,000 tax hit on regional homes. So um, yeah, that one's a a tricky one. Uh, Well, it's not really that tricky because uh, when you think about it, there is competition in the market. There are other developers who have already got their rezoning who are selling homes and uh, they're going to be looking to maintain their price point and any new developer who comes through and tries to pass on an extra $35,000 in in this windfall gains tax, uh, their properties aren't going to be as popular. Is there any added detail you guys can add to that side of the story? Well, yes. I mean, the, the properties are... An investor will buy a property based on what they think is they, it's worth in terms of you know the rental yield, the capital growth, and so on. For home buyers, it's maybe a little less rational. But generally speaking, you know, people are the ones, the buyers that come along are the ones who decide what they think the property is worth. And so if the developer comes along, just arbitrarily decides to increase the price of the property, whereas the buyer can't actually differentiate any additional value added just because this developer has had to pay a one-off charge like tax for this, there's no reason why the buyer would be willing to pay more for that property. And in many ways, the the tax is like a it's a one off sunk cost. So the developer, when they when they get hit with the the rezoning tax, it's effectively a, a lump sum charge that doesn't have any effect on the profitability of the development itself. So just because the developer has to pay the tax doesn't actually mean um, whether or not the prop- the um, the property is more or less profitable to develop in its current state. Uh, is affected. Uh, if anything, the the rezoning, given the rezoning gain, you know, the value increase, um, they're only paying fifty percent of that. It would indicate that if anything, the development has become more profitable uh, because they can now develop at a better and higher use than they could before. So, if anything, they still make off with fifty percent of of these windfall gains, uh, and so they're they're actually in effect still making uh, money out of those rezonings, uh, even if they would argue that they've now got to pay a uh, windfall gain tax. I mean, the, 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 they're paying the tax out of the windfalls that are being given to them from, from these rezonings. It's not actually coming out of the, the buyer's pocket, so to speak. And when it comes to the buy, coming out of the buyer's pocket, uh, the Property Council have another case study here saying that Melbourne small business owners are going to suffer with uh, rents rising uh, some $70 per week. Now, Emily, uh, what do we know about the Melbourne CBD the, and the commercial reality out there? Would any tenant uh, be willing to pay an extra $70 per week? I mean, that's it, isn't it? Um, A lot of this kind of hand-wringing relies on the fallacy that there isn't competition in the market. I mean, obviously, these impost um, effects uh, most commercial um, property holders with large large holdings. Um, But at the the moment where we have widespread um, commercial vacancies, we're really 
in a situation where their tenants are in a position to renegotiate or negotiate or move. In fact, I was in a boutique recently in Chapel Street. Um, she just she just reopened. She um, had been located three doors down, but um, the landlord tried to put her rent up. So her response was simply to take her business elsewhere, three doors down the road, to um, a landlord who had recognised the the competition in the market was too fierce um, to support that kind of um, rental increase. I think there is a question to be asked about um, tenants who are small business tenants or medium-sized enterprises who are currently in leases where their land tax is part of the outgoings. We don't have clarity around whether it is in fact possible for landholders or um, commercial uh, property holders to pass on those costs. We know as commercial landholders ourselves, um, speaking here as a trustee of the Henry George Foundation, that we are legally not able to pass on our land tax costs. So um, I think we need to get some more clarity around how possible it is. Certainly we know that there is no shortage of vacant commercial space and really there's a question mark over, you know, how many people will be coming back to the large commercial sites in the CBD and Docklands, etc. post-COVID. I think there's a quite, quite a bit of uncertainty. What I thought was interesting about the um, PCA's position, though, commercial rents, is they're sort of um, suggesting that, you know, their businesses were the only businesses legally required to forego rents and reduce rents due to COVID, that that they'd done this out of the goodness of their own hearts and, their you know, the goodwill that they had towards ensuring that there wasn't a complete economic crash. But it begs the question, doesn't it? I mean, was it really a choice? A tenant who can't pay the rent because they're mandated to keep their business closed, and I'm thinking about all of the gyms, all of the, um, you know, even we had a, an allied health practitioner in our building, they, they weren't allowed to operate. And in that condition, like, if a tenant can't pay rent, they're not going to pay rent. It's like trying to squeeze blood from a stone. So it really tells you what rent is. It's, it sort of highlights what, what rent is actually is, and it's the residual in the economy. Sure. Immense uplifts are possible. These are and these are, are not normal, the sort of profiteering we're seeing in real estate. So the government has done the right thing by putting more taxes uh, onto real estate rather than placing further burdens on our work or our consumption. So uh, hopefully you can... Uh, call uh, 3AW and some of these other talkback stations and and give them the other side of the story because the property lobby are out there in force. They've got a team, a squad of five uh, strolling through Parliament, uh, demanding meetings with uh, MPs. And uh, yeah, really, uh, it should be housing affordability advocates who should be banging down the doors of Parliament when you add up uh, the subsidies the government's basically guaranteed a $1 million median price here in uh, what was once known as uh, the world's most livable city. So uh, please check the show notes at 
prosper.org.au and follow us uh, at prosper underscore A-U-S-T. All right, thanks very much. My name's Carl Fitzgerald.